0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we meet an Edmonton mom patrolling the streets of her city, offering help and life-saving aid to illicit drug users, inspired by a vow to always be there for her own son. We look at the huge impact the six-year-old Edmonton Oilers superfan Ben Stelder had on the hockey team he loved and the city he called home. His family announced that Ben had died on Tuesday in an aggressive form with brain find out why there's been a sudden surge in job cuts in the Canadian tech industry and what that could mean for the future of the sector in this country. But first, a shortage of nurses is helping drive a widespread crisis in the Canadian healthcare system. What can be done to try to fix it? We hear some solutions. Well, first, let's take another look at the crisis-facing emergency departments across the country these days. A nursing staffing crisis is often pointed to as the issue that's specifically come up in the case of Ontario, where we've seen a rash of emergency room closures over the past little while, most recently in Ottawa at Mofor Hospital. But why is that? Well, burnout and overtime appear to be big culprits, and those are obviously very well associated balance of life issues, really. Um, Some reporting today from the CBC looked at overtime worked by nurses across the country using stats, canned data, and found some proof. It appears not only have nurses continued to work a ton of overtime through the pandemic and even before then, uh, but while overtime appears to be stabilizing for other workers in the medical system, nurses are still being asked to work even more. Again, as I mentioned, emergency departments across Ontario have had to close for hours or days at a time this summer. Uh, we're seeing closures in other provinces as well, including here in BC and elsewhere. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh recently offered up this idea. There are a lot of internationally trained healthcare workers that need to get qualified and want to work in Canada, want to contribute, but can't because of barriers, whether they're immigration barriers or Qualification or recognition of their international training, and so we need to have a federal approach to accelerating that. In Ontario alone, there's 15,000 nurses that are internationally trained that could uh, contribute if they, if there was a path to accelerate their their um, recognition of their skills. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh there recently with an idea about how one approach to trying to solve this, uh, you know, this chronic shortage, this. Of nurses in the country at this point. Well, Joining me now is Sylvain Brasseau. He's head of the Canadian Nurses Association. He's also a professor at the Université du Québec en Ottawa who researches the working conditions of nurses. So well-versed to talk about this topic. Welcome to the show, Sylvain. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I guess this idea that nurses are working a lot of overtime and mm-hmm. increasingly so comes as no surprise to you.
1: No, it's not a surprise and uh... I would say that it has been, been increasing uh, more recently. Uh, but if I look to Quebec, Quebec uh, nurses uh, work overtime uh, mandatory since, I would say, 10, 15 years. Uh, now we are starting to see overtime uh, in the rest of the country too also with the, uh, uh, with the issue with the nursing workforce. And uh, that's having an impact on the, on the, the nursing practice because people, when do you work uh, uh, many days uh, over time, I mean, eventually, that those, those the nurses will eventually uh, go to burnout. They will eventually be tired because, I mean, you cannot just be, you know, working like that, you know, each day. And uh, that also, uh, there is a risk of error, and um, who, would we, who will be sued for that? It's going to be nurses. And I mean, it's, and, and there is a risk for that, their license. And um, that's why we, we must reverse that. And we must uh, put, uh, as I said, to other media, we need to uh, have concrete action to resolve this. I mean, it's not sustainable and uh, people will get tired. And what they will do, they will decide to leave. And I mean, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, I guess the one power you have if you're being forced to work overtime is to walk away, right? I understand mm-hmm. I mean Quebec mandatory, but other places too, a lot of nurses complaining about the fact that overtime is now built into the scheduling mm-hmm. process. Again, overtime is not is not something that's that's done in an emergency. it's all the time.
1: Yes, and uh, we have seen I know it um, overtime uh, right now it varies will vary. By region, like for instance, average weekly overtime hours increase in Quebec and also in Ontario. But according to some data that we got in September 20, uh, regarding overtime, it's not not all the same in the rest of Canada. There is differences. If you look to Quebec, average overtime hours increased significantly from 6.2 hours in mid 2019 to 16.9 in May 2020. And I'm worrying now that it's going up. Uh, more like around uh, 20 hours i would say and even nurses have expressed in some media that uh, in some places they work they they, they ask to to stay 21 22, 23 hours uh, at the work i mean that that doesn't make sense you know and uh, and there is a uh, there is a risk that can lead to any kind of mistakes and we know that studies have clearly showed that longer shifts for hospital nurses lead to an increase in error, burnout and patient also d- dissatisfaction.
0: You know, Sylvain, I'll remember back to the late 90s, early 2000s. I was working as a reporter in Montreal uh, and elsewhere Mm -hmm. in Quebec. You know, there were lots of labor issues with nurses. Nurses were really pushing back for Mm -hmm. better working conditions to be respected. That was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. It feels like this Mm -hmm. entire issue has just been pushed down the road, and here we are in a a crisis situation, and now the solutions are more difficult than ever.
1: Yes, and that's going to take a lot of time collaboration, cooperation between governments, between the federal and the territorial and, and provincial government that I invite them. And I know they are working in some actions, okay? I don't say that they're they not working in some action, but they need to go quicker, quicker. It has to, we must, um, you know, we are too late for band-aid or quick fix solution. It's time for med long-term nursing solution And all level of government must work together to develop a comprehensive action plan that will address quickly many different aspects of the nursing and health workforce crisis with nurses. And this is important, and that's why we call for action now.
0: I want to talk about what the possible solutions are, guys. I know there are a lot of things on the table. The one other thing that's, that struck me recently, too, is that a lot of nurses out there already are heading towards retirement age. They're my age. They're in their 50s. You know, their early mm-hmm. 50s or, or older. And therein is another problem. You have an aging workforce and one where you're mm-hmm. seeing quite a bit of attrition because of the working conditions. So you have a double whammy. Yes, and
1: uh, the later nurse, uh, and, and, you know, I we have many solutions, and um, the solution that we've proposed, it's kind of, you know, I always talk about we need to invest in nursing. Investing in nursing means, first of all, it's important that we have better data collection on nursing workforce planning. I mean, if you don't have across the country an agency um, like you will see in Australia in, in or New Zealand having a better data collection will be useful for provinces and territories that to make sure that we know where people are working on. I mean, and knowing how many students will hand how many novice nurses that we have, the one into practice, the one working in hospital, uh, the one who will retire it soon, et cetera, et cetera, Having better working condition, I would even say safer working condition and adequate mental health care for nurses to prevent burnout. Not, you know, we, we, when a nurse is starting to feel uncomfortable psychologically, but we, it's important that we give them support for mental health. This is important to make sure that they don't go to burnout, you know. Retention strategy to keep current and new nurses in the workforce. Optimizing the scope of nursing practice. This is so essential to make sure that we have the right professional at the right place, for the right patient, at the right moment. This is one, another solution. Optimizing the workload by including strategies related to skill mix, you know, between nurse, uh, licensed practical nurse and nurses, make sure that we have the right professional, and also safer staffing ratio. And also I would add increasing administrative and cleaning staff to unlock more time for care to make sure that the nurses are doing what they're supposed to do we also uh, Sylvain, I,
0: I'll, ask you, I'll ask you more about these solutions in just a second. We'll take a quick break. I'm speaking with Sylvain Brousseau. He's the head of the Canadian Nurses Association, a professor at the University du Québec en Outaouais, who researches the working conditions of nurses. We're talking about the working conditions of nurses and how dissatisfaction with work and, and burnout and overtime is leading to a nursing shortage that's causing a crisis in our emergency rooms across the country. And we'll get to some more of Sylvain's solutions right after this. Stick around. Sylvain Brasseau is with us this half hour. He's head of the Canadian Nurses Association. We're talking about the crisis faces, facing nursing in this country right now and just what can be done about it. We're learning that people are working a lot of overtime. People are burning out. There's a lack of mm-hmm. nurses now. It's causing a crisis in many parts of the country. And solutions, as Sylvain pointed out, there are no Band-Aid solutions. But, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about uh, trying to accredit more nurses from around the world who are here already. Is that a solution, mm-hmm. Sylvain? Is that something that could work in the short term? Yeah. Yes, could be a solution that we must. Uh, and I think someone
1: just said that before me. Um, accelerate all the evaluation uh, process to make sure that we, because we do have. Uh, I think it's around twenty-six thousand across the country um, who are waiting. International educator nurses who are waiting to be um, to to get the response uh, to see if they um, if they can practice here as a registered nurse or as a licensed licensed practical nurse because we also have the licensed practical nurse and uh, that would be also one of the solution but it's one of the solution and i would also add that uh, and you talked earlier about our late career nurses why don't we provide uh, the the you know most of the nurse experts have retired earlier and, and you know earlier than they were supposed because of the working condition, because the the workplace environment is not uh, as good as it was before, why don't we provide uh, them a retention bonus for late-career nurses to support our new grads who arrive in the healthcare system, You know, such as a clinical mentorship program for all nurses, uh, and we could also um, for uh, our student uh, increase seats in the nursing school or faculty, because I must say, Despite, despite the fact that it's, we are going in a difficult time right now, the nursing profession, it's a wonderful uh, profession. And I'm a nurse since 1993. And if you ask me if I will start again, I would say yes, because it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful profession with many diversity, diversity areas of practice, uh, in nursing management, in direct care nurse, in primary care, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in rural and remote regions, and in, even in those areas, in remote and uh, rural regions, we could even offer uh, like, to the student loan forgiveness for those who would like to work in rural and remote regions. And there is so many uh, solutions that we can put in place. And I have to also add one thing that, I didn't, I didn't talk about. It's all mm-hmm. revisiting our model of care. This is something, right. you know, we have a problem with retention, but I think that we must review and revisit our model of care across the country.
0: What does that mean, Sylvia? How, how, would, you, how would you do that? I don't have much time, but I know that's a, an elaborate subject. But what do you mean by revisiting the model of care?
1: Uh, I mean, do we have, as I said earlier, the right patients put at the right place at the right moment, right. Uh, do we do we have the right professionals for this kind of care? Uh, is do we need more nurses? And I think we do in the area of primary care. Uh, and and where do we need more nurses in hospitals, or how many nurses do we need in um, remote and um, uh, uh, also a rural regions? Uh, who is the best person to give this kind of care? And you know, it's all about also a model of care that we need to revisit. We, we need also to rethink the functioning of the health system across the country.
0: Right. I mean, it almost sounds like what we need to do is come up with a real battle plan. I, I don't mean to use military terms, but come up with a real battle plan and make sure that yes. we're sending our resources, quote-unquote, our soldiers, where they need to be sent and that they're doing an effective job as possible. It feels very very scattered now if there's any solace though i was talking to we were talking about valedictorians in edmonton those graduating high school recently and a surprising number of them expressed an interest in going into nursing because of the example the nurses set during the pandemic so sorry i didn't hear you so there's a surprise there's a number of people valedictorians graduating high school who talked about Mm -hmm. wanting to go into nursing because of the example nurses set during the pandemic
1: yeah and because they know there is such a nice area of nursing even hospital you you will find different areas of nursing practice in hospital uh, and that could be a very interesting for for them and there is a lot of opportunities to become, when you become a nurse to work and you know that's why we need, we need to invest in the, what I've just supported and i could continue about other things. But that's why we must uh, move forward and and put put concrete actions. And before I I, I hand, I even said today, why don't we have a kind of paid residency program for our new grads at the end of their curriculum forward to facilitate their integration to face the new complex of healthcare environment that is different. 30, from 30 years ago, and you know yeah. about the residency program. It's a bit like the doctors, and right. and that. Why don't we do that? Yes, it needs investment, but you know, seeing that what's happening right now, it costs a lot of money. You know,
0: like you right. have a lot of people. So investing, uh, Sylvie, I'm running out of time. Uh, lots of great ideas there. Hopefully, government is listening. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. I have a
1: nice evening. <laughs>
0: We've talked a lot about the opioid crisis on this show uh, over the past eight, nine months, thousands of deaths, of course, a tragic story that has now been unfolding in this country for years. We've talked and talked and talked about the many many ways to try to tackle the opioid and overdose crisis in this country. More money, safe supply, supervised consumption, decriminalization, all ideas that should, are, and will be explored. But there are other ways, too, more direct ways to make an immediate difference. And sometimes that involves seeking out those who are vulnerable, the most vulnerable, those in trouble and helping. Angie Staines leads a group of volunteers that patrols the streets of Edmonton. They hand out snacks, water, and clean needles. They also carry oxygen and naloxone, a drug that reverses overdoses, meaning they quite literally, and do, save lives. They're called the 4B Harm Reduction Society, and the name will provide a hint of what inspired the work in the first place. And Angie Staines, founder of the 4B Harm Reduction Society, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell me a bit about about where this all started. I know that you have a, a nursing training. Um but when did you start just when did you decide to start patrolling the streets of of your town and and looking to help?
2: Um it was just over a year ago when the heat wave hit uh, Edmonton uh, it was really warm and and I went out and was handing out water um, just because i i couldn't see i couldn't imagine what it was like for for this community to not have access to just things we take for granted um, so so it's been just over a year now that I've been doing this
0: and tell me about the the four b. Uh, because I, I gather there's yeah. there's a story behind the name.
2: Yeah, so for B, um, B is my son. Um, he is a substance user. He's been using for over 10 years now. Um, he was in East Hastings uh, for a while, and and he is now back in the Edmonton area. Um, and just witnessing the the struggles he went through and the stories he would tell me and, and just seeing some of the, the challenges he had to face, um, that's why I do it. It's, it's always for, for him. So I try and remember that people out here, these are everybody's sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. And I, I just try and respect that and, and keep him in my heart and, and many others as I walk with my team.
0: So, what is an average night? I mean, I guess there's there's every night must be a little bit different, but what does it usually look like when you head out? And and what are you looking for? And I guess you talk to people, and but what is yeah. it, what does a night look like for your team?
2: So we we are are very mobile. We just carry what we can carry on our backs. So we all have backpacks and uh, medical bags, uh, and we just head out on foot. And we try and go into the places where where people aren't where people are kind of hiding their, their substance use. And, and and that's where a lot of the times we'll find them experiencing, experiencing a drug poisoning. So the alleys and stairways, um, LRTs, uh, we just try and watch kind of the patterns of, of where the poisonings are happening. And, and really it's just, you know, we hand out... Safer use supplies, like you said, uh, we have snacks and, and water usually. Uh, naloxone kits. And we also have, um, uh, uh, you know, we have medical supplies to just help people. But it's also about having conversations with people and, and just hearing the stories and, and, and understanding the reality and, and just hearing them because um, I don't think they feel very heard. And it's just trying to make that connection and just let them know that there's people that care. And it's there's a lot of stigma out here um, and judgment. And we just really try and practice radical acceptance and just meeting people where they're at and with no judgment I'm just standing with them.
0: I would imagine that on a given day, you might be the nicest conversation some have.
2: Yeah, and sometimes it's just a hug or a smile. And, you know, over the past Year I've been able to um, really, uh, you know, build some relationships so people recognize us and they, they look out for us. And yeah, it's it's it can be a really positive experience too. It it, it does fill your cup as well.
0: I mean, we keep seeing, um, I mean, I'm in Victoria, so there's problems here. You know, obviously, B.C. declared an opioid crisis many years ago now, I you know, think back yes. in 2015, so it's been a long time. Uh, yeah. Things don't seem to be getting much better. What are you seeing on the streets of Edmonton? Is it getting worse?
2: Oh, it's absolutely getting worse. Uh, there's there's a noticeable number more people out here. Uh, the the drug supply is constantly evolving and more potent and uh more dangerous we're seeing harder to reverse poisonings Where you know it's 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 not a it's not a great place to be and it's not getting any better not not by a long shot
0: i mean you do save lives right i understand you're, you've saved your sons i mean you've revived many people what is that like how do you how do you even tell that it's time when you see somebody that, that, Oh, that, that person needs, that person needs help.
2: We have protocol we follow. So we make sure that they, they are experiencing a poisoning. We, we monitor their pulse oxygen and, and, and making sure that if, if they need it, then we react, but we also don't want to give them naloxone when they're just down and, you know, having the experience of the drugs they're taking, so we try and honor that too. That's harm reduction because I don't know what they had to do to get that that supply. So it's it's really respecting that too, and then respecting their right to use uh, just safely and and hopefully keeping them safe.
0: I mean, there must be nights that that you would rather just put your feet up.
2: Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, my family, my family takes one for the team absolutely and i so appreciative of that because this is really important to me i i can't sit back and just watch watch people suffer like they are and and be treated the way they are um it's just it's it's wrong and it does need to change and we need some systematic change we need some we need to stop you know you you did say we were a lot of talk, but there's not a lot of action. And uh, you know, we can talk about recovery and and everything else, but you know, it's 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 a very complex issue. And, and really, all it really is about is just making the connection with people and making sure they're safe um, and giving the autonomy to make the choices they want to make. Because in the end, it's it's their choice.
0: How do you think your personal experience with it? through your son has allowed you to approach this in a way that seems at at the same time very empathetic, but also quite practical and quite, you know, I I see what the problem is. I'm going to to go fix it. Or at least I'm going to try to do what I can do to make it better where it has to be made better, which is right on the streets.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, my son once told me he was tired of people Um, crossing the street when they saw him coming that that hurt him and that made me really sad and that was one of the things that pushed me to do what I do Um, just reducing that stigma that that stigma is at the root of everything and and watching my son experiencing that stigma as a substance user has is is really heartbreaking because he's my son and I love him and uh, you know he has his struggles um, but he's also fighting a system that isn't really helping, and uh, <clears throat> so really just trying to honor honors people and and the choices they make, and just making sure people are safe. Like that, really, to me, is what it's about, and just and bringing some dignity where there isn't a lot of dignity right now. Um,
0: but yeah, yeah
2: he, he drives everything I do, and that's why it's four B.
0: Yeah the, the I mean what would you say to parents I mean as you pointed out every single one every single person you deal with has probably has a mother or father somewhere right what do you yeah. tell them about about accepting the struggles because I know just from having read about your about about your experiences that this can't have been easy this has always been a struggle right yeah uh, no have and a child, have, yeah.
2: yeah i didn't it's not something i just came into i, I had to learn i had to 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 understand, I, I didn't understand harm reduction when this first, uh, you know, everything first started. I was told, you know, he needed the twelve steps, and so I thought I was listening to experts. But then I realized that that wasn't helping. That that's not what he needed, um, you know. And so, really, for me, it's it's a way I have a relationship with my son, and it's it's respecting him and loving him unconditionally. Which, you know, I know it's hard for parents to watch their kids. It's not easy. There's days where it is absolutely devastating. It, it is a living nightmare, you know. Reversing your own child's overdose is, is hard to explain. And you're not, uh, yeah, it's nothing you can prepare for. But, you know, also, I've giving him. I know he will turn to me when he, he is ready or if he chooses so I, I'm his safe space and having that relationship is important. Um is and I and it's important for both of us and we still and I'm able to have somewhat of a relationship with him and and I I just need to be the unconditional love that he needs right now. He's you know, he's not well and and he's got enough on his plate. So I'm not gonna
0: sit and judge. And in the in the process, you've also saved the sons and daughters of other parents, which is yes, you yeah. know in of itself remarkable. Um, I'm speaking with Angie Stain. She's founder of the Four B Reduction Harm Reduction Society. Uh, she and a team walk, patrol the streets, essentially walk around on the streets of Edmonton uh, most nights, helping people uh, who are experiencing uh, either just anybody who illicit drug users, but also those who are experiencing uh, toxic drug overdoses and so on. And just talking about uh, the inspiration to be there, her son, Brandon. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just what, I mean, you're right down seeing this uh, every day. What needs to be done? What could we possibly do to try to start to solve this? Because it feels like we've been talking about it for seven years. Lots of people have lots of good intentions, but it feels like nothing is quite working. We can't keep up with the supplier. We can't keep up with what's on the streets amongst other problems. We'll talk about that after this. We're speaking with Angie Staines. She's founder of the 4B Harm Reduction Society. They're a group of volunteers who uh, walks the streets of Edmonton at night, helping people out, helping people uh, using illicit drugs out, also saving lives as well, which is part of uh, the work, unfortunately, these days, if you walk those streets, uh, Angie said earlier that really it's gotten worse, and 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 that's not encouraging, is it? I mean, we felt like seven years into this crisis, maybe we could see some light at the end of the tunnel, but it doesn't feel that way. I mean, you you have such a unique perspective of how this is unfolding. What needs to be done? What can be done, even in the short term, to try to at least make some progress?
2: Well, you know, it's definitely a loaded question. Um, mm-hmm. I would say.
0: We need to get a handle on the drug supply.
2: We need a regulated supply to stop what's going on and and how these drugs are changing and getting more potent. We need to we need to decriminalize and get these people out of the cycle that they're in. We need we need mental health supports and we need you know we need things like detox on demand. Um, there's no. I'm not against recovery at all. I think harm reduction and recovery can can be in the same room together, but we have to stop putting our expectations on these people um, of of what what they should be doing and and let them lead that. But the, the services need to be there, and, and long wait lists and and a poison supply is you know it's not helping. Um, but we we really do need a lot more help but decriminalizing and and getting uh, a regulated supply would be my first my first thing because we need to stop people from dying we need to stop talking about it we're always you know we've been talking about this for seven <laughs> many, years. many years and uh we we got to stop the talking and we've got to, we've got to see some real action because people are losing their lives and. And I'm personally tired of watching people die. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of watching my child suffer. Um, You know, it's when there has been opportunities that when he's felt like he needed help, the help was not there. Uh, So it's, you know, um, we really do need to make a lot of changes. We really do, but we have to stop the people dying first. Uh, That would be my number one thing.
0: Do you get the sense that, that a lot of, there's just a lot of ignorance about what exactly is going on, just how potent yeah. and how addictive these drugs are, just how devastating they are, that people yeah. don't understand that it's not like it was 20 years ago or 15 years ago?
2: Oh, no, it's, it's not like it was even when I was in high school in the 90s. Like, this isn't just an inner city problem. You know, you, you can't experiment like you used to. Um, there's a, it's in everything sentinel uh, is in a lot of drugs a lot of counterfeit drugs you know um it's and if people people don't think it, it can affect them they they're sore they they will be wrong because it's um it can affect anybody and and I think really educating yourself on what decriminalization actually means it's not a free for all you know either is a, a regulated supply really really learning about that I think that Educating yourself on what that actually looks like and talking to the experts, you know, reading the papers the, and really just understanding what people need.
0: Because it feels like even now um, we take baby steps, right? Even de- the decriminalization effort that will be going on in British Columbia is still seen as not enough because the quantities are too small. Yeah. That there's yeah. always the this, time, this push and pull. Anywhere. Yeah, the it thresholds.
2: Yeah. No, and the research is out there people just avoid it because it's you know either it doesn't directly affect them or they're they're just offended by the thought of people using drugs um but people use drugs for many reasons you know um and it it, it's just it's unfair to put our expectations on people but also watch them die um you know there's just yeah, no point to yeah. it. It's all these needless
0: deaths. And, and you've seen, you've seen, I'm, I'm sure, far too much of it already. What will you do? Will you continue to do this for as long as it's needed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not stopping. I, I, I can't, I can't stand by and watch people suffer like this. Um, it's just not right. That's the bottom line. It's not right. I, I, I wish people understood how serious this is and that you know these people they're not bad people they they just need help and and we need to we need to treat them like human beings
0: what about you though i mean you know i i would never imagine we would live in a place necessarily and and this is naive where we would have to rely on the love of a mum to revive people having drug overdoses on our streets. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's a lot to ask of anybody, let alone someone like just one person out there or one team of volunteers out doing this work.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty unfair to put that expectation. I think people in government need to open their eyes to the fact that, you know, they're, they're making all these decisions, but it's groups like mine and many others that are, are trying to hold it together. And it's, it feels like a losing battle at this point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm tired of watching friends lose their children. I'm, I, I'm tired of watching community members die. I'm, I, it's, it's, it's maddening. They need to stop talking about it and they need to do something substantial. And now, because it's, it's not, it's not going to fix itself. And these little steps and, and continuous chatter about it is, is just not sufficient.
0: Well, Angie Staines, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, with me tonight. Um, good luck with the work. I can't imagine just the, the sheer weight of what it is that you encounter each and every night, but someone has to do it. So, I'm Thanks glad for having you, me on. You're, you're very welcome. Have a great night. You too. Bye. You know, sometimes sports and those who cheer for a team means so much more than the game and the team. And that's especially true of kids, and perhaps no young fan in all of North American sport touched a team and a city quite the same way Edmonton Oilers superfan Ben Stelter did, particularly during the team's playoff run last season. When he was four, Ben was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. He underwent surgery to remove a tumor, as well as several rounds of chemotherapy and dozens of radiation sessions over the years. Well, today, the six-year-old's father took to Twitter to share this this very sad news that Ben had passed away late Tuesday. He said the world lost the most special boy and an absolute hero last night, Mike Stelter wrote. Ben, you were the best son we could have ever hoped for, and you were my best bud ever. Your sisters were so lucky to have you as such a sweet brother. You fought so long and so hard and beat so many odds. Well, Ben was a fixture at Rogers Place, becoming part of the team and a friend to the players, in particular his hero, Connor McDavid. Ben even had featured on an upper deck hockey card alongside his idol. Here he is, taken to the ice at Rogers Place this past spring as the flag skater, in the dressing room after a big win, a big Oilers win, and being interviewed with Oiler Zach Hyman.
3: We had a very special Scotia skater join us, five-year-old Ben Stelter. Ben was diagnosed with a brain tumor one year ago and underwent four rounds of chemotherapy and 30 sessions of radiation treatment to remove it. In December, the tumor returned, and he's about to undergo another round of radiation sessions next week as his battle against cancer continues. He's one of the biggest Oilers fans there is, so fans, please show your support
0: for Ben Stelter. All oh, the wind could work, but sometimes there's things that happen life that
3: are bigger
1: than sports. Ben, your church you go, buddy. Yeah.
3: Hey, Ben. How are you?
1: Good. What did you think of the game today? Really good. How did you think Zach Hyman played today?
3: Good. I think he <laughs> plays pretty good.
1: Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. <laughs> Ben, who's your favorite order?
3: McDavid and Joyce.
1: I your name out there. <laughs> Do you see the right? Did you see all the fans on the other side? All the fans. Wow. Oh,
3: look at that. I'm all cheering for you.
0: Needless to say, a word of Ben's passing has prompted words of sympathy, sadness, support from across the hockey world, from across Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And far beyond, from players to reporters, all the way across the spectrum, the Oilers released a video on social media tonight with Connor McDavid speaking about Ben. Obviously, Ben is uh, as big an Oiler fan as you're going to see. You know, it's an absolutely tragic situation, and you know, it's something that uh, you can't really wrap your head around. Um, you know, but he's such a such a good little guy, and. Um, it's such a big heart and he's just such a, you know so sweet. You know you never want to see a family go through like that you never want to see a kid go through something like that. so any joy that we could bring him was uh, was always worth it. Connor McDavid there speaking about Ben Stelter. Well, joining me now is Reed Wilkins. He's the host of Inside Sports and the Edmonton Oilers broadcasts on Edmonton 630 Chad and a proud Edmontonian, of course, and perhaps none so more than perhaps particularly tonight. Uh Reed, thanks so much for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Um it's you know, this is something that's touched so many people in so many ways. Uh it was really interesting just to see all the outpouring of sympathy and support for Ben tonight. Uh what what kind of impact did he have on the city? It's hard to describe if you're not there.
3: Well, I, I think everybody really rallied around him. You know, I, I remember when he came out onto the ice as the as the Scotia Bank skater before the game on March 24th, and he was, uh, you know, he, he, he was obviously five at the time, so really young, and uh, you could tell, you, you know, he was uh, really churning hard to try to get around the ice, and and Connor made sure he was in place for the national anthem and talked to him and, you know, made sure he was standing right in the middle of uh, of the team on the blue line for the start of that game. And then you played part of the post game he did with, with Zach Hyman, which was awesome. And then he sort of became uh, a fixture. If if he and his family were at one of the home games, he was always flashed up during the national anthem and got a huge cheer um, in the Oilers, uh, one of their pre-game presentation videos during the playoffs, there was a shot of him looking at the camera going, play La Bomba baby, which is the victory song the Oilers play after they win a game. And, and I think everybody just sort of latched onto him and, and saw how, you know, led by Connor McDavid, the Oilers as an organization really... Did everything they could to make him feel like he was, you know, almost a part of the team, basically. And and the, a lot of players talked about the impact he had and and how he made them, uh, you know, feel good and, and how his energy helped them, um, you know, as much as he was making as much as the players were making Ben happy. I, I think the, that he really had a huge impact on the players. And the coaches as well, and I think you also look at this Ben in the in the context of it's been a little under two years since Joey Moss passed away, who right. was you know a, a fixture with both the Orders and the Double E for you know about thirty years before uh, he passed away. So I you know I I, I think that there is a, a precedent there with the Orders organization and also the fan base, um, you know, saying like, hey, yes, Connor McDavid's a hero, Leon Drysitle's a hero. But there are other people who can be heroes and who can carry a lot of energy and through their support and their passion for the team and community, they can be leaders and they can be legends as well.
0: I guess La Bamba was Joey Moss's favorite song too. That's where this this came from, did it not?
3: That's true. That's why the Oilers <laughs> adopted La Bamba as their victory song for this year Connor, or yeah. Joey. Yeah, so it yeah. all kind of ties together, yeah.
0: Um. I was also impressed to see just—I mean, not just the Oilers, not just the Oilers team, not just Edmontonians, but just the outpouring of sympathy and support, and from from uh, from right across the league. I mean, the Calgary Flames sent out a note, uh, the Colorado Avalanche did. I mean, he uh, obviously the story touched a lot of the hockey world as well.
3: Well, the National Hockey League itself sent out a statement. I mean, think about that. You know, yeah. like that's 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 pretty significant. I I I, I think he. I mean, the, the story is obviously, as Connor said in that clip, that, you know, it's 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 tragic and it's it's hard to wrap your head around. But he was just, like, Ben was just so easy to like. And, and that's what I relate to. That, you know, for right from that first game, it was like, you got to know more about this kid. Like, what's what's the story? What's the family story? Like, how, you know, is he coming to more games? Like, just I think the media and the fans just wanted to know right away and i, I know for my personal experience i i got to meet ben stelter once and it was the day you mentioned the upper deck hockey cart. so there was uh right. sort of an unveiling for that he did something sort of privately with mcdavid and then the oilers you know said okay like if people want to talk to him come down but you know you got to respect obviously what the family wants and i, I talked to mike stelter the dad and i said you know like I'd love to grab him to run something on my show. I like, you know, but I kind of would like to do it one on one on one, not in a, in a scrum. Like I didn't know what was going to be set up for sure. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, like, no, no, we'll, you can talk to him. You know, he gets tired. This is a, this is a long day for him just doing this and everything. So, you know, it might not be very long. I said, no, no, I'll ask him a few questions. And, and Ben, the the interesting thing for me was, um, you know, people, people often ask me, you know, do you get nervous? Do you get nervous when you host your show? Do you get nervous if you interview Connor McDavid or Wayne Gretzky? Well, no, I don't. I always say like, I've been doing this over 20 years. I'm used to having a microphone in front of me. I talk to all kinds of people I just treat everybody like a, like a person. Like I always say, if I feel nervous, then that's my fault. I'm probably not prepared. And I never really feel nervous. I felt nervous leading up to interviewing Ben Stelter. I really did. <laughs> And I, it wasn't that I was unprepared, but I felt like you cannot screw this up. Like this, this guy's important. Like you can't, you can't stumble. You can't ask a stupid question. And and, then of course you only got a certain amount of time. There's not going to be a redo, but I felt nervous because he was important and it was important that I was going to have a little chat with him and that was going to get out to my audience.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, as you know, interviewing children is tough and you know, all the time it's always uh, what did he say? What did he tell you?
3: Uh, he told me what did I say? Well, I played it on my show. You could probably find it in my show file if you want it. I will. <laughs> yeah, a, absolutely. It, I'll have it, to go it, look. It's 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 less than a minute long. Um, uh, I asked him uh, what it was like coming to the games. I asked him what the hockey card was like. I asked him who his favorite player was, and he always identified McDavid and Dryschild. He always said both. That's right. <laughs> he did. He, you know, and I said, "What's it like coming to the games?" And he just said, "It's it's neat." You know, he he was a man of few words, but he had that. Uh, <laughs> That uh, trademark giggle that everybody loves along the way. You know, so it was, it was a really memorable, quick chat.
0: Yeah, and, and the lucky chain and the lucky socks and the Mickey Mouse doll. I think what was so, I mean, from someone who wasn't in Edmonton for it, I think what was so inspiring about it is that it was a reminder of what it's like um, to be that age and love hockey.
3: Well, and, and you, you mentioned the other teams and the Calgary Flames and, and Matthew Kachuk, who obviously, right. um, he, you know, I, I'm comfortable saying one of the most hated players from opposing team probably in the history of the Oilers franchise, even though now he's no longer with Calgary. You know, he put out a video during the season wishing Ben the best. And I and I truly believe that this really shows the, the power of sports because – you know, of course, it's when you get to the high level of pros, you know it's it's win or or you get criticized or get fired or get traded, and yes, there's a lot of money involved, and yes, these these big teams are corporations, but I still think at its core and, and when it's doing things the right way, sports are are places for people to belong and and places to feel part of a team and places to feel uh inspired and to learn how to be a teammate and to create memories and i think that's what ben did first of all he got to like i said he kind of the orders did their best to make him feel like he was he was one of the guys but i also think you know through him everybody else also got to feel a little bit of the, that camaraderie where it's like hey you know here's here's a here's a little guy he's going through a tough time but he's got passion and he's still at that age where he likes sports because you know, scoring goals is fun and Connor McDavid skates pretty fast. Like little Ben wasn't worried about the salary cap or free agency or anything like that. You know, so I yeah. think maybe we all kind of saw sports through through his eyes along the way as well.
0: And, you know, you were talking about Joey Moss earlier about Ben. I was reading an article uh, a little earlier tonight just about about the inclusiveness of the Edmonton Oilers and, 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 and what a, what a kind of nice reflection it is of the organization in general.
3: Well, I, I think that the Warriors have done a good job with that. I mean, certainly Joey's story is, is well-documented with, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky being a, a big part of bringing him aboard. Um, you, you know, a, a, a fan named uh, Ashif Mowji, who I had on my show tonight, helped uh, a couple of years ago sort of set up the relationship between between McDavid and, and Ben Stelter and the Stelter family that, that obviously continued and was, was pretty strong. Um, you know the Oilers have done a lot over the years with uh, with the Pride tape and the and the You Can Play initiative and hockey is for everybody. They just had a Pride Cup uh, over the weekend that featured a ball hockey game between a team from Edmonton and a team from Calgary. So I, I do think they have pretty been pretty conscious of that over the years. And again, a lot of it starts with you know the two big well, two of the big name uh, players. And you know it's interesting with McDavid because he. You know, and I and I I'm part of it too. You know, sometimes you wish as a media member he was a little more demonstrative or showed a little more personality. I mean, he can be quite guarded. He's he's been in the spotlight since he you know he was a little kid himself. But I think his actions speak pretty loudly with how he treated Ben Stelter. You played a clip from that post game video. I think that was Zach Cassian talking, and then I believe Chris Russell presented something to Ben as well. But if you watch that video, you know McDavid is very okay, wait till Nuge is back from doing the interview. The whole team's got to be here. Okay, everybody gather around for a picture. Like, just making every moment, making sure every moment was perfect for Ben.
0: A last thought, Reed, tonight, just for Edmonton and and, uh, and the Withers and Ben Stilter?
3: Well, I think tomorrow will be emotional because uh, McDavid and Zach Hyman and Jay Woodcroft are going to speak at uh, at 10.30 in the morning. So... um i think that'll be uh be quite emotional um i mean maybe that's it could be the most emotional perhaps we've ever seen connor mcdavid and uh zach hyman is very well spoken uh you know an interesting situation for him him and his wife just welcomed their their second child a few days ago and uh and now he has to speak to to, to losing ben so i i think it's going to be um i yeah i think it'll be touching to hear what those men have to say tomorrow
0: Reed Wilkins, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
3: Okay, thanks for having me.
0: Well, this week has already brought some more bad news in the tech sector, at least if you're employed at a company called Hootsuite in Vancouver. They're a big company, uh, one of the beacons of Canada's tech crop in many ways, laying off 30% of its staff, just the latest company to announce job cuts recently, following others such as Shopify, something we spoke about on the show not that long ago. Rapid growth, or at least rapid hiring because of rapid growth, seems to be the root of the problem here. And it comes as politicians at all levels, of course, fall over themselves. They've been doing it for years, trying to promote their town, their city, their province, their country as a tech hub. So what is going on? Are we headed into some kind of dot-com crash redux? Or is this just growing a growing industry having some growing pains? Joining me now with more on this is tech, tech expert Ritesh Kotak. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, the, the Hootsuite again didn't come as a huge surprise. I guess it had been talked about for a while. The CEO had been sort of telegraphing it for a bit. But uh, put it into context: is it that seems like a lot of jobs at a, at a company that had done very well for quite a while?
4: Yeah, and you mentioned Hootsuite, uh, Well, Simple, Shopify. There's a lot of companies that have had to lay lay people off, and the reason for that is you know we take ourselves back to March 2020. I know nobody wants to take uh, travel back in time, but at the kind of at the start of the pandemic everything went online there was a lot of uncertainty and especially after the first after the first two or three weeks we're like okay we're probably in this for the long haul and we need the technology to fill in the gap so there was what i call a band-aid solution where a lot of companies st- started to hire in 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 pretty large amounts of individuals to provide consumers with those Band-Aid solutions. I think we all remember back to using video conferencing or other or apps and being like, I wish it could do this, I wish it could do that. Well, they hired developers, programmers, marketers to be able to do that. But now we can do that. And what's happening is with everything opening up, we're starting to see kind of a reset. So it's not going back to where it was. I think if you were to graph this, it would first look like a hockey stick right at March 2020. But now it's been a... Steady climb, but it has kind of leveled off. And we're seeing that accompanied with inflation, accompanied with um, the job market itself, um, really hitting the tech sector hard and other sectors as well, but the tech sector front and center.
0: Yeah, There does seem to be a bit of a pattern here, though, and I think this is what we were talking about a few weeks ago when we were talking about Shopify, was that they're not letting go of their engineers, because those are hard to find. Those are very hard to find in this uh, job market, but they are really cutting back on some of the marketing, some of the customer service stuff, like those jobs that that really were put in place, I would imagine, to fuel growth as opposed to fuel development or to fuel innovation.
2: Yeah, and, and, and it, I
4: guess it depends on which company you talk to, because uh, the... Some, some of the statistics are are showing that it's actually those are the jobs that are that are being cut. Um, but on the flip side, is we're also seeing developer positions being cut as well. I was looked at like what is the core function of the uh, of that company? Is it um, to generate sales? Are the engineering based? Are they an engineering based company? What is their what is their strong suit? And I think what we're finding is is not just developers that are losing their jobs. It is the business development and salespeople um, as well. I know people that are in uh, marketing and business development with some of these companies that have been, um, that have been laid off, not just engineers. And it gets you thinking, okay, well, did they overhire? Were they not able to meet that criteria? Clearly the CEO Shopify put out a statement saying, you know, we kind of um, we essentially misjudged the market. We thought it was going to be a lot bigger um, than what it was and it, and the growth was going to be sustained. But it wasn't, but it's not just one particular role, it's multiple roles, and that's what makes us very concerning.
0: Yeah, I remember uh Toby Ludke, I think, actually said something mm. along the lines of we got it wrong, which is which is uh, you know, that this we thought this growth would be, you know, what we saw at the outset of the pandemic would be permanent and sustained and, and it hasn't been. Uh is there any I mean, I know it's different for every every company, but is there any Anything here about whether revenue growth just wasn't what it was supposed to be, and now that funding is, is going to be harder to come by, that you just couldn't justify some of these companies that seem to look good on paper but never really made a ton of money, and I did none in particular, uh, but the, you know the usual tech, the usual you know, for those who don't, who don't follow too too closely, the usual sort of tech story where it sounds great, doesn't make money, and then the funding dries up, and here we are.
4: Yeah, and and Canada itself, I think what we've what we've seen for the longest time, and this is one of the big criticisms of the Canadian tech industry is um, Canada's um, the U.S. is ten times the size, and there's other other markets as well. And what we've also seen is Canadian tech innovation and intellectual property that you end up getting it to a certain point, and then it actually ends up getting acquired by a bigger U.S. firm, some of the uh, some of the Silicon Valley firms um, in, in in particular. So Canada's in a bit of a unique in a in a unique situation but yeah i think they kind of misjudged uh just how long this and how great and how sustainable this growth was going to be um, and made decisions thinking that the trajectory was going to be maintained when it clearly
3: wasn't
0: what are you hearing from inside the tech industry itself? Because of course, you know, over the last several years, uh, anybody that uh, I'm out in Victoria, there's a tech community here. Anybody that I knew who worked in tech was quite bullish about the future. Things looked good. There was lots of work to be had. There was lots of work on the other side of the border. You know, they, the world was the oyster, so to speak. But um, is there any change in that, do you think? Or do, is, are people figuring this is just a bad patch and things will bounce back?
4: Um, it's it's difficult to judge i've I've had conversations where people have kind of told me two different things on the on the one side is you know what is the future of what is the future of tech do we still have um do I need to upgrade my skills is there something else that i'm that I'm missing um and then other people are like okay this is this is going to pass it is it is temporary um I personally think that overall the tech sector is going to grow i think that there is ample opportunity and even these individuals, you got to remember who actually joins these types of companies, especially startups. It's people that are very entrepreneurial in nature. Um, they have the skill sets, um, and they're they're full of energy. So when you start to have these types of uh, layoffs, uh, it always makes me think that there's going to be even more innovation that might come out of it. In the short term, it hurts. It definitely does. But in the long term, um, are we going to see it bounce back? Are we going to see... Continuous growth, and are we going to see greater innovation coming out of these really motivated individuals? And I think the answer is yes. I think Canadian tech overall is strong. We're innovative, um, and you know, don't count us out just yet. I think that this is a rough patch, but we will get
0: over it. You raise an interesting point because I think that's partially for the fault of people like myself, where we pay a lot of attention to certain champions, right? Certain big names. We're always waiting for the next, you know, for the next um, uh, research in motion to come along, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about the Hootsuites and we talk about the Shopify's because they do become specifically Shopify. They do become sort of these international brands and they're Canadian and and they're in a sector that we watch a lot of that seems to be innovative. So we talk about them a lot. And when things go a, a little bit askew at those places, we tend to think that it exemplifies something that's going on right across the board. Do we pay too much attention to the big names in this country? Are we too uh, covetous of those big names? I guess everyone's guilty of it. But, uh, you know, a few big companies do not a whole sector story tell, right?
4: A hundred percent. And I think one thing that we all need to remember is Canada is known for its small business community and its its tech startups. So I think that is, uh, I forgot this, I don't remember the statistics, but the number's pretty high. It's, I think, over 60%, 70% of, um, uh, of growth has been in these types of industries, especially small businesses. Like, that is our, our economy. Yeah, we got these few big names, but they're few. Um, we are known for the small businesses, and that is where the innovation is actually occurring. That is where you have people that are innovative. That's where they're taking those, those risks. And and in some cases are being rewarded. And yeah, we have a very strong, vibrant startup, startup community and that's not going anywhere.
0: My guest this half hour is Ritesh Kotak. He's a cybersecurity and technology analyst. We're talking about uh, some more bad news in the tech sector this week, more layoffs, Hootsuite specifically. Uh, this week announcing a 30% uh, of, its lay- of its workforce would be laid off. We've uh, been talking about other companies, such as Wealthsimple and uh, Shopify over the last few weeks as well. So, you know, a difficult time obviously for Canadian tech, but as Ritesh is pointing out, uh, there are lots of other uh, smaller tech companies out there still working. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about what this could mean for the future uh, we've been talking about it already but you know obviously in a lot of places there's been a lot of banking on tech as the future of work in a lot of cities in Victoria you know there's there's been a lot of talk about sort of incubators and just building up these industries and sometimes you wonder if, if everything just didn't get ahead of itself a little bit we'll get to that after this Ritesh Kotak is with us. Um, We're talking about layoffs in the tech industry of late. We've seen uh, a lot. Uh, Some big name ones, specifically Hootsuite this week in Vancouver. Shopify, of course, there's been some others. Vancouver-based software company, unbounce uh reduced its workforce by nearly twenty percent cutting forty seven jobs online furniture retailer article announced it was letting go of two hundred and seventeen staff uh, recently as well so we're seeing a lot of it going on of course we're paying attention to it as well we're not talking about those companies that aren't laying off people uh, are we uh Ritesh, did it surprise you at all i mean coming out of sort of as as the as the high height of the pandemic seemed to wane, there was this idea that much like hybrid work that that consumers would really adopt the best of online versus the best of what used to be if they could, but that there wouldn't be any sort of elastic band snapback with with um, with online retailing. There seems to have been a little bit of one, though, that it hasn't been quite, you know, people were happy to go back to sort of bricks and mortar a little bit more than we expected, I think.
4: Yeah, I think that a lot of people thought that our entire lives were going to go online, which was which was wrong, but that was you know, those were the conversations that were happening. Like, this is the new feature, uh, future, work from home. You'll be able to purchase everything uh, online. And, you know, bricks and mortar is is going to be a thing of the past. And I think that was kind of naive. And, and I remember having this conversation and with, with numerous individuals. And I said, well, the future, the, the past was physical and the current is virtual. But the future is hybrid. And we're going to have to figure out a way to... Uh, be really good in the physical world and also in the virtual world. And they're literally going to be coming together. We're going to live in this new hybrid convergent world. And that is where the investment has to go. And companies that did do that, um, I think they benefited, um, but companies that kind of banked on, no, 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 everything's going to be, everything is going to be virtual. They're now having to face reality and, and are are dealing with a lot of pressure, and that pressure has led to
1: layoffs.
0: Certainly, in the, in the case of something like Shopify, uh, the other thing that was pointed out quite clearly, though, is that a lot of the you know retailers that they're supporting sell the kinds of things that are also being hurt by inflation. So there's, you know, there's another story going on in the background here, too. Like, what is it that you sell? Who do you, what is your tech product? Who are you supporting and what is it that they sell? Um, And that, you know, inflation, people cutting back on on discretionary spending and so on will also have now an impact on tech, perhaps in a way that it wouldn't have, you know, four or five years ago.
4: Yeah, 100%. And I think that at the end of the day, you need people to buy buy stuff and and use your services. So the way, a company like Shopify works is, is actually quite simple. Um, they, they create the platform. I'm sure they don't make their money off the platform, charging a vendor hundred dollars a month or whatever they charge per month. They make their money off a percentage of the transactions. And if there's less transactions that are happening on the platform at the end of the day, that's going to hit your bottom line and you're going to have to find some other way of, of making up, of making up the difference. And the companies that we're going to invest, the companies that we're going to move, um, there was funding available. There was this surge. I remember uh, uh, provinces making thousands of dollars available, $5,000, $10,000 available to small businesses to help create websites and do online, online marketing. Well, that money is not available anymore. So now it's businesses that need to, that need to pay for it. Customers want to go back in, in, um, in having this hybrid model, not just physical, not just virtual, but hybrid and convergent. And on, on top of that, the tech companies weren't able to predict that. And, and that's kind of led us into this, these issues.
0: One of the things, I always like to read the comments and articles, of course, because it gives you a good idea of what people are talking But not always. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of talk when this starts to happen of, you know, oh, here we go again. You know, the, the people who remember back to the dot-com bust of back when, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a business expert, but I don't sense that we're in the same position that we were uh, back then.
4: No, you're absolutely right. And And the thing to remember is, Okay, so you have these tech, tech companies that are clearly in the news, and we're talking about we're talking about tech layoffs, but also the investment that's happening in other elements of the tech sector. We're seeing huge investment in uh, in, in uh, Internet of Things, which is related to manufacturing. Clearly, electric vehicles, um, education, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality is a great example. There's been there's talk around billions of dollars being invested in in extended reality and virtual reality, the you know the buzzword being the metaverse. So th- there is money, there are jobs. You know, there AI is front and center, and and the innovation that's happening in the artificial intelligence space and robotics. There's lots of funding. There's lots of opportunity there, um, and it's and it's growing at an exponential rate. So it's kind of a shifting of 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 the funds. So we talk about the in in the short term the current things that 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 are that are making the news, which is the layoffs, but the longer term is a greater investment in emerging technology.
0: Ritesh Kotak, thank you so much for your time today. Always fascinating.
4: Thank you so much for having me.